0: A rich man's world, I have turned the okay. Welcome to the Faking It podcast. I'm here with Dr. Lemke. She is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford School of Medicine and the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Dr. Lemke has recently appeared on the Netflix documentary *The Social Dilemma*. She's a specialist in the opioid epidemic and the author of many books, including her latest *New York Times* best-selling book, *Dopamine Nation: Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence* super awesome. You're like really incredible. I met you when you came and talked to, in my class and in psychology, introduction to psychology. And I just remember being so enthralled by everything that you were saying, so engaged and also the way that you just talk and like your persona and everything about you is so cool. So I read your book, totally loved it and just wanted you to come onto my podcast and talk to my audience. So thank you for coming on. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you
1: for those kind words, and I'm excited to be here.
0: Cool. So, I was wondering if we could dive into your latest book and like your research around addiction and dopamine in particular. And just to let everyone know what dopamine is, maybe you can give a little just talk about like what dopamine is and why it matters. Like, why is this a topic of a book that you've written?
1: Yeah, sure. So, dopamine is a brain neurotransmitter which means that it's a chemical that we produce in our brain. It's essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's also important for movement and has other functions as well. Um, And it's it's central to understanding how we become addicted. So the changes in dopamine over time that occur in the brain in response to repeated ingestion of a substance or repeated engagement of a behavior are what eventually uh, lead to the pathophysiology that we consider to be the brain disease of addiction.
0: Okay. And what does that mean in layman terms for like a person who doesn't have any addiction? How do they get affected by dopamine? Because I know we get dopamine rushes when we eat a bar of chocolate, for example, you know, so like, what does that look like in our day-to-day lives?
1: Well, I mean, dopamine is essential for our function and for our survival, right? It's the neurotransmitter that tells us this is something that we should do again. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe
0: you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Um, and it's, it's also um, key to knowing what's new or novel in the environment. So not even just things that are pleasurable, but things that are generally things that we should pay attention to. Um, mm-hmm. And it feels good when we release dopamine, presumably, uh, because what we know from animal experiments and also in humans is that things that generally feel good, things that are intoxicants or just rewarding more broadly, um, are things that release more dopamine in a dedicated part of the brain called the reward pathway. But what can happen over time as we continue to, uh, you know, stimulate this part of our brains is that uh, our brains adapt or compensate by downregulating dopamine production and transmission not just to baseline tonic levels of dopamine firing but actually below baseline into something we call the dopamine deficit state and with mm-hmm. enough exposure to reinforcing substances and behaviors we can kind of get stuck in that dopamine deficit state which is akin to uh, addiction as well as feels like depression, anxiety, irritability. Mm -hmm. We've essentially uh, changed then our hedonic or joy threshold, where we need more of the reinforcing substance and behavior in larger quantities and more potent forms, not then to get high and feel good, but just to bring us out of that dopamine deficit state and feel normal. And when Mm -hmm. we're not using, we're walking around. Uh, in a state of craving, mental preoccupation, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use.
0: Mm -hmm. So just to explain, so you're saying that dopamine is what helps us feel good in general, kind of just gives us pleasure. It's pleasurable to feel it. And so when you take some sort of drug that makes you feel but that good, that increases your dopamine, like for example, heroin, which I think you wrote is like getting eating a bar chocolate's like fifty-five percent of like a dopamine rush. Sex is like a hundred percent, heroin is a thousand percent of release of like dopamine. Um and so Yeah, so actually yeah, not not
1: heroin, it was actually
0: amphetamine.
1: Oh. Amphetamine. Okay. But yeah, yeah yeah, I mean, that's a, you have to be a little bit you know careful about over interpreting those data to mean that you know amphetamine okay. is a thousand times more addictive than chocolate because right. part of that is artifactual amphetamine, mm-hmm. the mechanism of action is to release dopamine into the synapse. So you're going right. to get high dopamine readings from amphetamine. Right. Whereas other um, reinforcing substances and behaviors also release dopamine, but they do it as a kind of downstream effect after a different kind of chemical cascade. Right. The other thing too is that there's this whole concept of drug of choice, right? So what might exactly. release a lot of dopamine in your brain might not release a lot of dopamine in my brain mm-hmm. and vice versa. From mm-hmm. an evolutionary perspective, right. that kind of makes sense. We wouldn't want everybody going from this, for the same exact reinforcing goods. We would want it spread out across the tribe. But, you know, as generally speaking, dopamine works as a kind of common currency for Mm -hmm. uh, substances and behaviors that are reinforcing. Now, I probably need to qualify this one step further. There's often a debate around whether dopamine is more important for liking something or the pleasurable aspect or more important for wanting something or the motivation to get it. Right. And it's important for both is the answer. Um, so mm-hmm. it looks like, you know, dopamine is important for the experience of pleasure, but also dopamine drives the willingness of the organism to work, to, to, to try to get that reward, especially in that dopamine deficit state. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very famous experiment where rats were engineered to have no dopamine receptors in the reward circuits of the brain. And scientists discovered that if you put food in the rat's mouth, it would eat the food, seem to get pleasure from the food. But if you put it even... A body length the way that the rat would starve to death. This idea being that we need dopamine in order to be willing to be motivated to do the work to get the reward.
0: Right. So it's not just, it doesn't just invoke or give us pleasure in the act. It also makes us want to do, want to embrace pleasure as well, whatever that pleasure be, whether it's eating food or or et cetera. And then also one thing that... Oh, sorry. Do you want to say something? Oh, I was just
1: going to say, so initially, you know, exposure to any intoxicant or reinforcer is pleasurable. But again, the key mm-hmm. piece here is that over time, that initial upward spike in dopamine gets weaker and shorter, but that after right. response or that dopamine deficit state gets stronger and longer. That's how the brain mm-hmm. attempts to balance out.
0: Right. So there's this idea of like homeostasis that you talk right. about a lot in the book where... If you get repeated exposure to something that's pleasurable it's not going to be as pleasurable but you'll still get that negative side of it the same amount and so it still just hurts as much but you need more of whatever that dopamine is when it comes to like certain drugs and i think that's one really interesting distinction too that you're making that dopamine you have certain drugs that just release dopamine you know these are like the methamphetamines that you're talking about then you have certain acts that you like that are subject to just you, you know, like I love white chocolate. And therefore, when I eat white chocolate, it tastes so good. It gives me so much pleasure as opposed to my mother who doesn't, you know, like let's say doesn't like white chocolate. Right. And mm-hmm. so that's where it's dependent on. So you mentioned in your book, you talk about this idea that we're in a dopamine like society economy. You talk about um, David Courtright, a historian who calls our economy Olympic capitalism, where we have pleasure at our fingertips, speedy satisfaction, high potency drugs, all these different things. So this to me sounds like something that's not like these high, not like these drugs that are built to release dopamine, but rather things in our economy that we just like you know, that are subject to us that then release dopamine. What, how does that affect us as a society, just having access to, you know, Amazon instant deliveries, um, social media, constant entertainment at our fingertips, not necessarily a drug that releases dopamine, but just activities that just make us feel good. So how is that affecting us?
1: Yeah. So I think you're, you know, drawing an important, Um, connection between sort of the classic drugs that people think about, things like nicotine cannabis and alcohol Mm -hmm. and stimulants like methamphetamine or opioids. And everybody kind of knows, oh yeah, you can get addicted to those, but really anything that's reinforcing um, that makes us, you know, experience some degree of reward or pleasure that we want to then experience again has the potential to become Addictive. So we can get addicted to behaviors as well as substances. And then importantly, mm-hmm. in this kind of dopamine economy that we live in now, uh, we've sort of, you know, biohacked the motivational and rewarding aspects of almost every type of human behavior and made it more reinforcing, more plentiful, mm-hmm. more potent, more novel. So whether it's playing mm-hmm. a game or connecting with other humans or eating food Mm -hmm. or going shopping all of that has effectively been turned into a drug making us all more vulnerable to getting addicted to these kinds of everyday experiences that
0: infuse
1: Mm -hmm. our lives
0: and where does the pain come into this because i know that you're saying that our neural point for pleasure gets higher and higher the more that we're exposed to something so how does pain play a role and like is it that we need to be on social media for longer in order to get the same feeling of like relaxation from social media. Or like where does pain play a role or our, our, our threshold to pleasure play a role and how does that affect our society?
1: Yeah. So the, the metaphor that I like to use for that is a, is that of a balance. So imagine something like a board on a central fulcrum or a teeter totter, which represents okay. how we process pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain are co-located in the brains, the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of this balance. Um, There are certain rules governing this balance, and the first and most important rule is that it wants to remain level, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis, and the way that it remains level after any deviation to pleasure or pain is first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus is. So, if we eat a piece of chocolate that releases dopamine in the reward pathway, our pleasure pain balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than we essentially tilt an equal amount to the side of pain. I like to think of that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it there. So, they stay on until we're tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate, uh, wanting to watch one more TikTok video. Uh, wanting right. to you know smoke one more joint, have one more glass of wine, we can even experience that that craving and that come down while we're still ingesting uh, you know that first uh, uh, substance or engaging in that first behavior. And yeah. in a world of scarcity where it's really hard to find these reinforcers, well, we're gonna not have the ability when we're in that, you know, on the pain side of the balance to, to reach for more. So we're going to have to just wait it out and the gremlins will hop off and homeostasis will be restored and then we'll you know do some more work to look for more of that reward. But in this mm-hmm. world of overwhelming abundance where we have access to almost every reinforcer, re- reinforcer at the touch of our fingertips, it's actually mm-hmm. very hard not to ingest more of that substance. And right. that's one way to accelerate The return to homeostasis, right? I have a piece of chocolate, I get pleasure, then I tip to the side of pain, those gremlins. Now I could wait for them to hop off and then homeostasis will be restored. But on the other hand, I could grab for two pieces of chocolate and that will bring me, Mm -hmm. you know, level again. So of course we all have the urge to do that, because again, this driving physiologic drive to kind of go back to the level position is very, very strong in all living organisms. And that's essentially the process. And with repeated exposure, that initial deviation to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response gets stronger and longer. In other words, those gremlins start to multiply. Pretty soon they're camped out there. And now we're walking around in this chronic dopamine deficit state where we need enormous quantities of pleasure to feel any pleasure at all or just feel normal. When we're not using, we're in pain.
0: Where's the homeostasis there though? Because why doesn't the pleasure stay pleasurable? And why does the pain get stronger? Why doesn't that happen in the opposite sense too? Uh,
1: well, it can, it can, but again, okay. if, if, if you, if we expose ourselves to the same reinforcer, the same substance or behavior that was initially released dopamine or something similar, the way that the balance works, and this has been, you know, shown across, you know, many different studies is that over yeah. time we develop tolerance So we need more and more of that drug to get the same effect. So that initial deviation to pleasure just gets weaker and shorter, but that after response is stronger and longer. So we tilt deeper and deeper and deeper down on the pain side, more and more gremlins. If you're asking why would Mother Nature be so cruel as to make a a
0: balance (laughs) that does that. Yes, that's what I'm asking. Right. Well, you know, it
1: has to do with, survival in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, mm-hmm. which is the world that human beings have lived in, you know, for most of our existence. I mean, if you think about a world like that, where we were, mm-hmm. you know, uh, evolved to traverse, you know, 10, 10 to t- 10 to hundreds of kilometers, in some cases a day, in order to just find food, water, and shelter, what better way to get us to do that than to make every pleasure fleeting and to have it be followed in its aftermath by pain, uh, such that uh, we're motivated, even more motivated, to keep seeking. Um, And that really makes us very, very driven to continue to look for those rewards. But it is a terrible system for the world that we live in today, this world where we've sort of changed our ecosystem uh, such that, you know, pleasures are readily available wherever we turn. They're very potent. Uh, They're Mm -hmm. very abundant. They're novel, um, you know. They're they're easily available. Uh, all of which mm-hmm. uh, makes it a, d- a very difficult environment for us to thrive.
0: Yeah. So, so this scale, this pleasure pain scale, that gets tipped when you have some pleasure, and then tipped back to the level of pain. Is it? strictly temporal so is this something that if let's say you have that second craving you want more chocolate let's say you have an eating disorder and you feel like you're in a binge you know or like that's an extreme example and some and technically an addiction to, to food in that moment that's right um so is this just something that to get over that feeling is it solely te- temporal where time heals homeostasis like homeostasis just takes time is that the only factor so
1: with enough brain plasticity we do believe that um abstinence from the drug of choice uh, is the secret to restoring homeostasis so yes leaving mm-hmm. enough time between binging uh, for example on highly processed highly fatty sugary uh, salty foods would be the way to restore homeostasis food is an especially interesting Example, because of course we're not talking about not eating food, right? We're talking right. about not eating drugified food. It's drugified right. food that gets us in this vicious cycle of craving. So when we work mm. with people with who have food addiction, and many people, yeah. uh, you know, who have been conceptualized as having eating disorders, uh, really it's not about body image per se. It's more about the kind of uh, anesthetized state they can achieve either through binge eating or restricting or binging and vomiting, or binging and laxatives. So we try to get them to abstain from that particular behavior, either purging or ingesting the drugified foods for long enough so that those neuroadaptation gremlins get the signal, oh, wait a minute, I'm not getting these huge dopamine hits externally from drugified food, so now I'm getting just healthier food that I need to make my body function. So those gremlins then hop off. And eventually homeostasis is restored.
0: Right. That's really interesting because also in your book, you talk about the importance of changing behavior to prevent addiction, not just by taking certain medications. You know, Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that in terms of just medicine, how medicine plays a role in pain and also how it isn't always the sole answer to creating change for somebody?
1: Um, you mean, are you talking about like psychotropics? Is that what you're asking about things like antidepressants Psychotry. or
0: anxiolytics or what? Yeah, we can mm-hmm. start there. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the past 50 years or so, uh, maybe more like 30 years have been sort of a grand social experiment in which we have given things like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, or anxiolytics like Xanax, Ativan, Ad- Valium or mood stabilizers, what have you. To people with diagnosed mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, other mood disorders, uh, you know, all in the spirit of trying to help them and help uh, help stabilize their moods. But really, we don't really know, you know, what uh, what's happening, um, and we don't really know the long term effects or the. And only now are we really seeing some of the potential more subtle downsides, but essentially what we're doing with that is we are gently pressing on the pleasure side of the balance. There is some degree of neuroadaptation, adaptation, although it typically happens very slowly. Um, mm-hmm. The result being that for most people who are taking antidepressants, they don't develop an addiction to it and it continues to work. Um, over mm-hmm. time, which is the good news um, for for psychotropics like benzodiazepines, xanax, uh, Ativan, valium, clonopin, those are addictive and tolerance mm-hmm. develops quite quite quickly and in a relatively short amount of time they will usually stop working although patients tell us though it still feels like it's working what they're probably doing is just medicating withdrawal from the last dose and not the underlying disorder so they're just kind of, keeping a level balance in between but ultimately adding more gremlins to the pain side, which is why we don't recommend using those types of medicines long term um, mm-hmm. getting back to the antidepressants you know there are also potentially some subtle costs that are maybe not widely recognized just things like people losing some of their emotional bandwidth yeah not getting as sad or as anxious but maybe also not. Experiencing some of the uh, profounder emotions like awe and grief, or uh, profound joy because of the kind of ceiling and floor effects of those medications. Mm -hmm. I want to emphasize that I prescribe psychotropics every clinic day. They can be life saving. Um, so this is not a message about you know not using medicines, medicines appropriately prescribed to the right person by somebody who understands the risk benefits and alternatives um, are a really important tool, but they Mm -hmm. are often over-prescribed. People can get addicted to certain types of psychotropics, especially stimulants and benzodiazepines. So I I think, you know, people have to be um, sort of wary consumers,
0: Right. And I thought something that you said that was very interesting was you brought up this example of a woman who got gastric bypass surgery. And then there's a stat that one in four people who have a surgery develop alcohol addictions because there isn't really that practice for behavioral change of just like an addiction to something despite bodily help. That they're getting right. whether it's medicine or whether it's surgery. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? That was kind of like what I was thinking too, sure. is how the importance of like behavior yeah. with medicine is important. Yeah. Um, which I think we can talk about, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that that's a really great point. Um, you know, when we attempt to change these complex, ingrained, repetitive behaviors with a surgical intervention or a pill. Um, you know, that can be helpful, but on the other hand, we're also potentially bypassing no pun intended, um, in the development of lear- learned behaviors, more adaptive learned behaviors. And mm-hmm. the result can be that that sort of quick intervention with a pill or a surgical procedure can work for a time, but isn't necessarily going to be the best solution in the long run. In the long yeah. run, it's really better to, change behaviors, change the environment, change the interaction between behaviors and environment so that we develop Mm -hmm. new neural circuits that allow us to um, really um, have more adaptive and healthy coping strategies over the long haul. This is true, you know, um, potentially true um, with people who have, uh, you know, uh, severe eating disorders and obesity, as well as, for example, people with attention deficit disorder, um, you know, who are often prescribed stimulants, but really might be better off not taking stimulants and instead learn, learning better um, focus uh, uh, strategies. Um, mm-hmm. I will say, however, that, part, you know, part of the problem here is that we do live in this, you know, incredibly uh, drugified ecosystem where it's mm-hmm. very difficult, for example, to eat healthy food because unhealthy food is everywhere, And so, you know, when you look at that mismatch between somebody's physiology and the world we live in, in some cases, um, you know, the ability to do a surgical intervention or help them with medication really may be compassionate intervention, um, especially then when combined with a behavioral intervention. So it doesn't have to be either or is kind of what I'm saying. You know, we Mm -hmm. can combine behavioral interventions with these surgical and pharmacological tools when indicated.
0: Right. But so, but does that mean that they're not mutually exclusive? So you can sometimes do one, sometimes do the other and sometimes do both. Or would you say that both is important to help somebody get over some sort of addiction?
1: You know, I would say that it depends on the person for some, for some person, you know, for some people that behavioral intervention will be best for others, you know, a a pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. intervention or a surgical intervention really may be best for them. Or really, yeah. when you have when you have the most severe cases, um, it's a combination of the two. And in general, mm-hmm. my bias leans toward psychosocial and behavioral interventions, just because every medical, uh, you know, pharmaceutical or surgical intervention is going to have potential risks associated with it, which can be avoided, you know, if you are engaging in the behavioral intervention.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's something that you talked about too in the book that has to do with like this idea of just feeling good pleasure in our society is how like kids are kind of being sheltered in a sense and how that may be hurting them to some degree. Do you want to talk about this? Because I personally like really enjoyed reading that because I do think that that's something that is happening in our society. But for some reason, I feel like it's controversial to say that, you know, to say that like it's okay to be, you know, to talk about something that could be hurtful to somebody or could just trigger us in some way. It's like, what are your thoughts on, on this, um, in particular? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I mean, I always want to tread lightly here because my message is yeah. not that, that Jen's ears are sort of coddled necessarily or <laughs> spoiled or weak or, you know, whatever yeah. it is. That's, that's not really the message at all. It's more that that Gen Zers are the recipients of about 120 years of evolving mental health concepts that really began with Freud, this idea that our early childhood experiences shape future psychopathology, even at the level of the unconscious. This is Freud's great contribution. I may not even be aware of, you know, some of the serious and even, let's say, traumatic events that I uh, endured as a child that are now contributing to my adult suffering. So this is Freud's idea. The problem is that over about the last 120 years, this has progressed to the point where people are now, and I say people, not, not just Gen Zers, in general, as a culture, there's a narrative that suggests that any kind of distress, disease, challenge, or hardship going to set us up for future psychopathology, and that was never yeah, Freud's. Yeah, that was never Freud's original intention or message. That's um, just somehow what what's happened to that message over time, um, such hmm. that now you know parenting is infused with this idea that we have to sort of protect our kids and make sure they're comfortable, and if they have if they're going to fail a class or not get on the team or not get a part in a play. You know, that's going to be devastating for them. We need to intervene and help them get those things because otherwise they'll be overwhelmed with sadness and, and, and distress. And this is all going to then make them, you know, turn into depressed and anxious adults. But, but in mm-hmm. fact, you know, to, there's a tipping point here, right? Um, there's a tipping point at which too much trauma um, is not a good thing, but too little trauma is also probably not a good thing that there's some right. happy medium where we knew, we do need a, enough challenge and distress and experience of failure and enough awareness of our shortcomings in order to be able to you know, function as successful adults. And right. that contrary to the idea that a hardship in our life is always going to result in some kind of adult psychopathology, what's very mm-hmm. true is that overcoming hardship in our lives can often be a touchstone to help build our confidence that we can then endure future hardship. And I Mm -hmm. think this is what we really have to remind ourselves of because we've somehow forgotten it.
0: Yeah, I I think that's so interesting that we hit a point where not everybody, obviously, but a lot of people don't face those kinds of hardships, which is why I think – it makes sense. And in a high class society, people are so depressed because maybe they don't have this like idea that they have so much, you know, and that they should be happy because they don't know what it's like to not have what they have already. Uh, so what do you do about this? Like, I, I know that I remember I was sitting in a plane once and I was talking to this woman and she asked me about my past. And I told her, I grew up in this religious community. And she was, she told me, she's like, I'm very wealthy and I don't know how to raise a son who is going to be grateful for what he has. Do you have any advice for me? And I said, no, send him to Africa. Like, I don't know. You know, like what are your thoughts on how to help people be grateful at the end of the day or build that resilience and know that what they have is enough. So we don't have to strive for more pleasure since you already are experiencing so much.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I want to be a little bit careful with this trope. You know, send somebody okay. to Africa, right? Africa is a varied uh, country w- with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a, a lot. A lot. I think that's a. We don't want to, you know, that's probably not the best um, example. But your yeah. overall, your overall point <laughs> You're is right. Is, yeah, your overall point though is well taken, which is just simply that. um, You know, we're you know as a society, both individually and collectively, we are facing a new kind of challenge today, which is uh, the challenge of having so much. You know what what I sometimes refer to as the plenty paradox, where Mm -hmm. plenty and overabundance itself becomes a source of actual physiologic stress uh, and and suffering. Um, so, you know, what I advocate for is a kind of new form of asceticism where we intentionally create barriers between ourselves and the many intoxicants that are inviting us daily and instead try to simplify our lives, try to consume less, and even intentionally try to mm-hmm. do things that are hard. This is things like okay. exercise, you know, ice cold water immersion, cleaning out our closets, intermittent fasting. Um mm-hmm ordering directly from the barista instead of using an app, writing a thank you note saying we're sorry. All of these things that take effort that are not immediately gratifying, Mm -hmm. but which, you know, in their sum make for, you know, happier, I would say, and more rewarding life. And if you look Mm -hmm. at the neuroscience of that, there's a whole branch of science called hormesis. Hormesis is a Greek word that means to set in motion, and essentially, what hormesis has shown is that when an organism is exposed to mild to moderate doses of not toxic or noxious, painful stimuli, that actually makes the organism more resilient, more robust, faster, stronger. You name it. The key mm-hmm. is to get the right amount of of, of the toxic stimuli. Not right. too. Not, if it's too little, it won't work. If it's too much, the organism will be injured. So we're not talking about self harm or cutting. We're talking about kind of that in-between sweet spot, that right-sized amount of pain or difficulty that allows us to be more resilient and more robust and ultimately Mm -hmm. to get our dopamine indirectly. Because when we press on the pain side of the balance, those neuroadaptation gremlins are happy to go over and hop on the pleasure side of the balance as a way to restore homeostasis. So ultimately, we are changing our hedonic or joy set point to the side of pleasure Uh, by doing things that are hard uh, in the first place.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I read that, I remember I I was going to a yoga class the next day and then the yoga class, we were stretching and I had to like stretch my shin and I was like, oof. Then I was remembering what you said about how being in a little bit of pain can actually enhance pleasure overall. And so I thought about that. I was more intentional about like, how does my body feel when I'm inflicting this like small amount of stretching pain on my legs, you know? And, and I did realize after like holding it for a second, holding that stretch for like 15, 20 seconds, I felt this release of pleasure through Mm. my body. It was very physical. Mm -hmm. I noticed it because I was really trying to pay attention. I was like, Whoa, like this is actually happening. This is real, and it was very. It was really cool to so, like oh, that's great. pay attention to that. Yeah, that's so. great to
1: hear. A lot of uh, I will often counsel people around the opposite that when you're think about like when you're on how you feel when you're using TikTok or social media, and then right when you put it away, notice that come down, right? That dopamine yeah. free fall. That that sort of anxious, restless, sad quality that encroaches. Uh, we are literally, you know, in dopamine free fall. Uh, So again, is it worth it, right? Is it really worth it uh, when you kind Mm -hmm. of go through the whole process of seeing that sort of secondary effect?
0: Mm -hmm. Totally. And it makes sense that you get that fall because it's kind of like right now you're experiencing just life, whatever Mm -hmm. that is. And then you have your pleasure, you have your pain, it's kind of balanced out. And the second you uplift that then that's your new state of normal right. so when you go back down it's worse than where you were for that millisecond five seconds 20 seconds hour of social media you know but then if you're here for a while then that's why that becomes the normal because then you have to go up one more level to then experience that like push so yeah. that's why i guess it makes sense to that you got you have to keep on either staying where you're at working to put the balance to keep it there um, all right. I guess one last thing I'd like to talk about is how to get over these addictions. I know you kind of talked about it with abstinence, with like getting rid of something. I know for me recently, I decided to try this out with my phone. I went on an eight day, no phone challenge. Oh, wow. Just kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Great. kind Good of, for it's you. pretty insane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially cause I'm an influencer. So mm-hmm. like if I can do it, my, I can. I really do think anybody can do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I bought a new phone. Like a small, it was $30 on Amazon mm-hmm. that just had a SIM card that was for emergencies. I didn't give the number to anyone except my mom. She needed to give it to her. Um, but, but yeah, I was only for emergencies just in case like I need to dial 911. And I was off my phone for eight days. And it was, I went through the cycles of like addiction. You know, I was like ir- irritable during when I was eating food. I, I couldn't relax, you know, it was right. weird. It was really yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, but eventually after eight days I did feel calm. And even now I I'm at like the office where I work every day and I don't bring my phone here. I just mm-hmm. bring my camera because of my, to get, get content. So I, I, I followed the next sense. I did some experimenting and now I'm like hitting a space where I'm comfortable I don't know if everyone can do this no phone challenge to stop phone addictions. Mm -hmm. I can't really tell people to do that. But what are ways that aren't as extreme, if that's possible, for people to break out of these like social media habits, phone habits, daily addictions of our society? Give any advice for people there.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I love that you did that. You know, good for you. Mm -hmm. That's not easy. You You planned for it, which was (laughs) a smart thing. Uh, so right. what we rec- what we recommend is we do recommend a dopamine fast, figure out what your drug of choice is and digital devices. So we're all a, at least a little bit addicted. Um, so mm-hmm. if you can eliminate the device itself, like you did for a period of time, that's the best. If
0: right. you can't
1: get rid of the device altogether, um, then think about deleting apps or not going on the, the websites or whatever your drug of choice is, right? That thing that once you start, you have difficulty stopping, that thing mm-hmm. that you, you said you said repeatedly you would cut back and you haven't been able to, that thing that's interfering with your goals and values. Identify what that is, plan to quit it for a period of time. Um, you know, make sure that you set it up for success. So like you did, you got another flip phone so you would be reachable. You told people in your intimate circle yeah. that you were gonna be available in a different way. Right, And then essentially on your quit date, um, you know, create barriers between yourself and your drug of choice. So I assume that you didn't leave your phone out handy somewhere for where you would go walk by it every time, right? right? I assume you turn it off and power it down. You (laughs) hit it, right? Or had somebody else hide it, or I've had patients actually put it in a bank of America safe or what have you. Wow. Um, And then be prepared for the symptoms of withdrawal because the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior, in addition to whatever physical symptoms of withdrawal we may be having, the universal psychological symptoms are anxiety, irritability, Mm -hmm. insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. And our brain is really good at coming up with stories or narratives as to why it's really important that I check my phone even though I committed, uh, you know, to not doing it, and that can be things like my kids will need to come, my mom's going to need, or this person's in trouble. So all kinds of will come up with sort of like altruistic reasons, or you know, really good sounding things, but it's really just rationalization. Right. Um, and then you know, observe how uh, after the uh, acute withdrawal starts to dissipate, notice what you're feeling. Are you feeling less preoccupied with that stimulus? Um, mm-hmm. You know, are you, are you feeling less irritable, less anxious? What we see a lot mm-hmm. of is folks coming in who want help with depression and anxiety. 20 years ago, I would have given them an antidepressant. Now what I recommend is a dopamine fast, typically for four weeks, because that's on average mm-hmm. the time it takes to reset reward pathways for most people who are addicted. Of course, everybody's different and a week might be enough, right. especially for a young person. But in general, it takes minimum four weeks. And mm-hmm. 80% of folks will come back at the four week point if they've been able to abstain wow. uh, reporting vast improvements without our having done anything Whoa. else. So just by stopping with the constant, you know, stimuli that release dopamine, they allow their brain mm-hmm. brain's time to start to make their own, upregulate their own dopamine threshold again, and people feel a lot better. And then it's a matter okay. of, okay, after the dopamine fast, we you know, what now? Because yeah. obviously, especially with devices, we you know they're so integrated into our lives. And then we talk about a specific plan. You know, when are you going to use how much, how often? Um, and what I really like that you've done, which I think we need a lot more of, is you now leave the house without your phone, which makes people really, really anxious. But it's completely right. doable, and I think it's key. You know, there's a lot of like, well, I'm going to monitor my use, or I'm going to delete this app. Right. But what we need to do more of is actually leaving the portable device, right. So we're not, Mm -hmm. it's not with us and occupying us and and calling to us, right. Right. Actually getting physical distance from it for some Mm -hmm. period of time every day. I think that's the way that we're going to get to a healthier, uh, you know, relationship with this technology. Cause it's, that's what it's Mm -hmm. about. It's not about getting rid of the technology. It's about how can we have a healthier relationship with the technology?
0: hmm. I think for me, definitely abstaining from using my phone taught me that I can be without my phone. Yeah. For, you know, like, I don't think I would have been able to make that like logical leap to just say, oh, I'll only I'll leave it at home, you know, and I'll only use it when I'm there. Right. I wouldn't have thought of that because I wouldn't have, you know, I had to just go cold turkey yeah. to even know that, oh, it's possible for me to be without my phone. Like now I know right. this is okay. Right, Um, which is interesting too, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that comes up a lot. People say, well, can't I, if my ultimate goal is to just use less, can't I just cut back? And there are two problems with that. The first problem is it's actually a lot harder to reduce use than it is to just quit use for a period of time. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that if we just reduce and we don't quit, we really don't uh, reset reward pathways. We're always in kind of sub-threshold withdrawal. Whereas if we quit, we go into significant withdrawal but then our brain goes oh okay i'm not getting this thing i gotta start making my own you know uh up right. dopamine and then we get to a place where we really feel better and we're able to take joy and more modest rewards and then many people don't want to go back to using their drug or their digital devices uh the way that they were there they feel so much better that they right. really are motivated then to have a much different relationship
0: yeah. And that kind of just reminds me of what you talked about towards the end of your book about how creating strict guidelines, like for the AA really helps people yeah. adhere to these, you know, the rules because they're so yeah. strict. Right. There's no like gray area. There's mm-hmm. no like, sometimes it's fine. This limitation is okay. Cause then when you have these limitations, you end up, they end up being more malleable as opposed right. to yes and no, yeah. which in general humans prefer, I guess, you know, just the niceties of black and white of yeah. like, one or zero. It's just easy on our mind. Yes. Uh, which is, is very interesting. Easy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I would say my biggest takeaway from your whole book is about the idea of delayed gratification mm. and how that really helps us be happy as people oh, and mm-hmm. grateful for what we have. And now you're right. It's so easy in our society to just constantly. Get pleasure. But when you work for that pleasure, that's when it truly feels good when you put that work in. Uh, And so that's like one thing I want everyone listening to really take away from this is that if they're not feeling grateful or they don't feel like they're getting the pleasure they want in their life to participate in acts of writing thank you notes, you know, like you said, going up Mm -hmm. to work to get that coffee instead of hitting a button on your phone talking to somebody to get it you know like just putting in that little work to get something I think like you said just goes a really long way and makes us happier for longer yeah putting uh, a little so, a
1: little more friction in
0: there friction yeah cool well thank you so much for coming on to my podcast I really appreciate you Your sharing pleasure. these messages. Yeah.